This is Dispatches from the Frontline, readings from the diary of Sister Nan Ray, who served for four grueling years on the frontline of the battlefields of World War I, read by Geraldine Cook Daphna. Early in July 1917, movement orders came for me. There was quite a stir about it, as I had settled down and felt like part of the fixtures and fittings. The officer in command, Colonel Lestrange Eames, was very wonderful to me. He came to the theatre and said, A dreadful thing has happened. And when I anxiously asked what it was, he replied, Movement orders have come for you. I felt so dismayed and distressed. We discussed it for a while, gloomily, and then he went away, but returned presently with Matron and our surgeon specialist. My orders were to proceed forthwith, but the officer in command would not hear of that and sent a special messenger to Boulogne to the Director of Medical Service and the Principal Matron, asking that I should be given at least a day's grace. It was granted. Then I went to the sisters' hostel in Boulogne. Discovering that I was still there the following day, the officer in command arranged for a little dinner party in my honour at one of the hotels there. Just Matron and Captain Towes, VC, the blind Gordon Highlander, and myself. I was kept at the hostel for nearly a week before further orders came, and each day sisters, VADs and MOs from 32 stationery came to see me and bring me flowers and fruit and sweets. They were so wonderfully kind. Then movement orders for Sudkot via Dunkirk in the Newport sector. July 10th, 1917. After a particularly long drawn-out journey in a very slow train, we arrived at Dunkirk at about five o'clock, already evening. We reported to the RTO, railway transport officer, a surly fellow, who seemed not in the least glad to see us, and was distinctly peeved because we were so late. (laughs) As though that were our fault. You know, I suppose, that the station and the town are being bombed every night. Fritz starts as soon as ever it is dark. The town is quite empty, save for a few people in cellars. The rest camp out in the fields all night, outside the walls. We've got a dugout. I don't know where I can get transport for you. All this was jerked out at us, and then he got busy at the phone. We were rather hungry but daren't leave the station to look for a meal and decided that there would not be a cafe doing business anyhow. Les Salles Bosch seemed to be having things all their own way here. Feeling distinctly de trop, we retired to a seat on the platform and finished our sandwiches. It was a little after eight o'clock when two ambulance vans arrived. One took our kit and some other things from the station and Masterton and I bundled into the other. The RTO and some other station officials were distinctly jumpy, and so was our driver, who was not at all pleased at the prospect of driving along the main Dunkirk Road at night. They were all so thoroughly pessimistic that we started out with rather mixed feelings. Crossing the town, we left it by an old gateway in the Great Fortress Wall and were soon on the main roadway which ran north between the fields, the canal not far from us. It was a quiet, lovely night, clear and starlit, 
and we kept the back curtains rolled up and peered out trying to see what the country was like. But the peace of the night was suddenly broken by the terrific crash-bang of nearby anti-aircraft guns. It was so sudden that we nearly jumped out of our skins. The driver stopped and looked in at us. All right, he asked. Fritz is out. And then on again in a great hurry. Presently, we saw the wing lights of two planes and the thrilling sight of Archie shells exploding. German anti-aircraft fire just behind us. Then there was an ear-splitting crash and a rain of fragments fell on the car and all about us and a suffocating acrid smell made us gasp for breath and clutch hold of one another. We seemed to be thrown forward in a heap but quickly jumped up and I pulled down the back curtain. Our driver stopped and we exchanged inquiries. No casualties. Well, there's absolutely no cover so I suppose we might as well carry on were his next words and on we went. We had not gone far when another smaller bang, and out got the driver. A tyre. A sort of qualified tyre. His language most adequately met the situation. Masterton and I got out while the spare was being fixed. It was so thrilling to watch the overhead excitement, the whirring and droning of planes, and the crashing of anti-aircraft guns and explosives, probably bombs, that made the ground tremble. There's a bit of a ditch along the side there. You better get into it and lie down, advised our guide, who was, we knew, feeling very angry with the universe in general and possibly us in particular. The ditch was muddy and uninviting, so we thought we'd take our chance and perhaps try to help. We daren't show a light, but I did my best with a careful shaded torch. Even then, the wheel changing took three times as long as it ordinarily would. It was done at last, and we hopped in, and off went the Ford. We made so much noise that it helped to deaden the other sounds out a bit. I'm sure we had not gone more than two to three miles before another bang under us warned us of more tyre trouble. Our driver excelled himself, and Masterton and I nearly became hysterical. Happily, she has a strong sense of humour. She is a Scotch lass with a very broad accent. We did our best to cheer up the poor man, but he had no more spares and so the tyre must be mended. Feeling that this really was our night out, we held a consultation. Our driver remembered that there was a place, half house, half shed, about half a mile further on, and some men had billeted there. They might still be there. He'd better go and see. He did. We were left sitting on the back step of the ambulance watching the fireworks, and wondering just what would happen next. In less than half an hour, our driver returned and with him a young officer who was full of chivalrous concern about our predicament. He seemed to think it was too awful. You must come along to our billet and we can make some tea for you. It's a frightful place really, but better than being out here. So he led the way there. The billet was a partly destroyed cottage and the mess room nearly filled with a table quite littered with papers, equipment and smoking kit. We were invited to take a box as there were no chairs. Our hosts were three English boy officers, East Yorkshire, and their concern for us and their anxiety to make us comfortable were worth all our previous fright. We'll just put on some records and drown Fritz's racket, declared one youth, and a portable gramophone was produced, 
like a rabbit out of a hat. It was a night of surprises. A batman buzzed around and brought us café au lait, which was presented with many apologies for the tin mugs in which it was served. One of the youths disappeared into another room and returned with a tin of cookies from home. They must have known we'd been entertaining. They've just come, he said delightedly. The buzz of conversation exchanging experiences and the noise of the gramophone, which was kept going continuously, nearly did drown the noise outside. Our new friends were very critical of the powers that be, who permitted us to be abroad under such conditions. They declared we were great sports anyway. Nice boys. Meantime, our chariot was being repaired, and sometime about midnight, we got away. Fritz had gone home, and the night again was calm and beautiful. And there were no more thrills in the rest of the starlit journey. When we arrived at the casualty clearing station number 34, Zutkot, a camp among the sand dunes, we found a quite distraught officer in command and matron, who were by that time feeling fully convinced that the two new sisters had been blown up en route. Thank you for listening to Dispatches from the Frontline. This project was directed by Naomi Edwards, read by Geraldine Cook-Defner. Original music and sound design by Zoltan Fecho, with producing support from Tristan Meacham and voice editing by Alex Defner. The creative team gratefully acknowledges the support of the Victorian government through the Community Support Fund and Public Record Office Victoria and Creative Victoria with Regional Arts Victoria through the Sustaining Creative Workers Initiative supported by all the Queen's men. We would like to thank the Selman family and in particular Meg Selman for allowing us to use Nanray's diary.